Beloved in the Lord, the Lord has ascended on high to reign, to rule for the sake of His church, for the sake of His body. What a wonderful promise to His people as we continue to struggle with our own sin, with the world, and with the devil's lies. Psalm 24 demonstrates how the truth that God reigns, Yahweh reigns, were already a comfort for the Israelite church, and how much more of a comfort when the King of glory of our own flesh and blood has entered the palace of God in order to reign. David declares the lordship of Yahweh over all creation, and the implication is all are called to worship Him, and he's giving, he's giving instruction on how to come and worship Him. He lists the attributes of those who can come and worship such a, such a God, and the psalm ends with a welcome of the triumphant God, the God who has saved His people into His temple. David may be remembering how God redeemed His people in the book of Exodus, and as the final act in the book of Exodus, God enters the earthly temple. The people of Israel could ascend the hill of the Lord, Mount Zion, and know that God had entered His holy temple and so dwelt among them. This psalm expresses the faith of Israel, but at the same time it foretells so clearly the work of the Lord of creation. The Word will become flesh and will enter into the temple not made with hands, of which the earthly temple was only a copy. There the Word has entered to present Himself as a sacrifice so that we may be truly clean. And we, the people of God, may welcome our Lord Jesus Christ into that heavenly temple as the Lord of glory. So I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, who is Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God? First, we're going to see that he's the Lord of creation. Second, we're going to see that he's the Lord of righteousness. And finally, we're going to see that he is the Lord of glory. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. When we see that word Lord in the Old Testament, we should not simply think of the Father. This is the fullness of God revealed to his people. I am who I am. This is the same Trinitarian God that's revealed in the New Testament. This is Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son, and Yahweh the Holy Spirit. This is something we confess every Sunday. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in that confession is contained all the truth of Scripture. That's the primary and most important revelation of God, that He's the creator of heaven and earth. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Everything we are, everything we do belongs to Him. It's from Him. He's the fountain of all life, the fountain of all good. And this confession stands as an affront to the gods of the nations who claim their own glory. 
It stands as an affront to our own godless secular age where man fancies himself to be God. All I am, all that I do, I receive from God. Every breath is drawn by the will of Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. The dependence is drawn out in the, in the lines of verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Think about what's being said here. The earth is founded upon the seas. On the second day, he divided the waters above from the waters beneath. And then God lifted up the dry land out of the waters and carved rivers through it. God separated and established a place for man to dwell in the midst of unstable waters. Some of the deepest fears of society today surround the idea of climate change and the resulting floods. There's a fear that a large portion of land will disappear, that a great deal of our real estate will go back to the water from which it came. And the psalm reveals how this ultimately depends on God. He's the one who created those, those foundations. He's the one who's holding it together. He's the one who established the dry land. The assumption is that he is the one who will keep it as well, according to his good pleasure. All is dependent upon God. Even many unbelievers recognize this. It was a Greek philosopher who said, "'In him we live and move and have our being.'" But they do not know God. They only know that He must be there. They know about Him. And God graciously reveals Himself right here, and His revelation is gracious. Why? The nations do not know God, but here the psalmist reveals that He has shown Himself to the psalmist and, of course, to the nation that the psalmist belongs to, Israel. God revealed Himself to Israel through His Word, through Abraham, through Moses, through Samuel. And Israel responds with joy by confessing the greatness of their God. Paul says this in Colossians, by Him, speaking of Jesus Christ here, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Paul is talking about God here, but there is something new. The second person of the Trinity, Yahweh the Son, Yahweh the Word, has become flesh. The Word of the Creator of God has become flesh, and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. And He, He who revealed the glory of God, He who, of whom it was said, and in Him the glory of God dwelt among us, He has been exalted as our King at the right hand of God. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof can now be said of Christ. Who, he who came in our place has been seated at the right hand of God and rules over the nations with a rod of iron. And as the Holy Church, our very existence relies on Him. 
And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. When we confess that the earth is the Lord's, we add a new layer to what the psalmist spoke of. We confess with a much fuller understanding of the Trinity, how the Father has given all things to the Son, so that the Son, exalted, now exercises authority over all things. And that brings us to our second point, the Lord of righteousness. If God is your maker and your Lord, if Christ is your king and all things hold together through him, then you will want to get to know him. The reality is that mankind has been estranged from their father who created them. We need a way to be reconciled to the father. That means that verse 3 might sound like it starts a completely different theme from who God is to how to meet him, but conceptually these ideas are deeply connected. The psalmist asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? We naturally want a relationship with our maker. How will we get to him? How will we come and ascend the hill of God so that we may worship him in his temple? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. These are temple terms. You cleansed yourself through sacrifices and washings. But those clean hands had to correlate to a pure heart for that to mean anything, a heart that earnestly sought that cleansing from God. And yet we know from Hebrews 9 that those sacrifices and washings couldn't actually take away sin. It wasn't until Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross that the meanings of those washings and sacrifices were fulfilled. Christ shed his blood so that we'd be, we could be clean inside and outside. And this isn't just about saying words of repentance or verbally acknowledging Jesus as Lord. It's about a deep heart commitment to him who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. These are words reminiscent of the, the third commandment. Do not lift up the Lord of the name of the Lord your God in vain. But it also seems to be combined with the first commandment. Lifting up your soul to what is false is about what you are committed to in life. Who's first in your life? What is first in your life? Are you committed to money, knowledge, power, pleasure? That is to commit your life to what is false. Are you secretly worshiping Baal while you come before Yahweh? And the commitment of the soul is expressed in the tongue. Do you swear deceitfully? Your oaths to serve God, say in your profession of faith, Perhaps if you've ever had to swear in court or for citizenship or for something else, these are all done before God. Marriage in the Lord is done before God and the saints. Do you seek to live with integrity according to these vows? 
These qualities ask us to examine who, who our lives are ultimately committed to, who is first in our lives. And if we interpret these in a way that merely touches the surface of our lives, we might be able to demonstrate that we do not lift up our soul to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. We do, they're in, very literal, in very literal ways, I'm sure none of us do that. Yet the deeper we go into what this means, we see a life, we need to see a life that is fully committed to God, that seeks to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And this, this is only possible through relying on sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices that God provided for the sake of His people, so that those coming to the temple could say this, we are sanctified by the Lord and we can come and meet Him. In the New Testament, and ultimately this was what the Old Testament was looking forward to, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He provides cleansing. He works the faith in us so that we rely on Him. And He has gone before us up to Mount Zion, the true temple of God, of which the human temple of the Old Testament was only a copy. And He has presented Himself before God so that in Him we may approach the throne of God with clean hands, a pure heart, our bodies and souls fully committed to the Word of God. The one who does so will receive blessing from the Lord. That blessing doesn't necessarily mean an easy life. What it means is the favor of the Lord, the peace of the Lord in all that we do. And when that blessing dwells with me, it spills over into my family, my friends, the community around me. And more than that, we receive the righteousness from the God of our salvation. We already have here in, in our verses something that looks forward to the justification that we receive in Christ. Right? Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The psalmist walked the path of God with clean hands and a pure heart so that we might have, or rather Christ walked the path of God with clean hands and a pure heart so that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. When we commit ourselves to His path, when we trust in Christ's sacrifice to cover us and walk on the King's road, we receive the righteousness of of the God of our salvation. The God of our salvation. This is the God who saved Israel from the slavery of Egypt. This is the God who saved us from the slavery of sin. We already look forward to the third point of this psalm, where we welcome the one who accomplished this holy salvation into the holy courts of God. We welcome him into the courtroom of God for the great victory that he has accomplished in our place. And it's because of Him we can approach the throne of grace confidently, certain that we are pure and holy and righteous in Him. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. 
Already back then, this doesn't exclude those Gentiles who desire the God of Jacob. Notice that they receive these things, purity, blessing, righteousness, because they seek God. They weren't allowed to have the closeness that Jews would have had, but if they sought God, they would receive those things. And we have the same call today. God says it to all His people. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The context there in Matthew is the daily providence of God in everything we go to, reminding us again of the beginning of this psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of thereof. God is in charge. God is caring for His people. Seek Him and His righteousness, people of God. This is what you will give you the strength to keep going day by day. And that brings us to our third point, the Lord of glory. We've confessed God's Lordship, which is revealed in Jesus Christ, who is even now seated at the right hand of God. We've confessed the, the righteousness that He calls us to, that He has given to us. In Him, we can ascend the hill of the Lord. We, of course, today don't literally ascend a hill, but our hearts are lifted up to Jesus Christ. And when we ascend the hill, we are greeted by the servants of God. In the Old Testament, the priests and Levites knew the ministers of the Word, both which act in the place of the angels of God in the heavenly courts. There's a call to gates and ancient doors to open so that the King of glory might come in. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. We call the temple of God to open up to receive the King of glory. And we see the entrance of that King into the heavenly temple in Hebrews 9, where He presents Himself to God as an acceptable and worthy offering. We could also think of Revelation 4 and 5, where Jesus is revealed as the lion and lamb within the courtroom of God who is worthy to open the seals. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord put on the flesh of man and came to earth, and He won. He beat the devil. He beat sin. He has won the greatest victory for us. It was a battle that we could not win because we are enslaved to the devil. Christ freed us so that we can have this righteousness and life in Him to everyone who seeks him. No wonder there's a double call. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. There's a call to Christ to come in, and there's a call in this to the congregation as well, or a call to the leaders of the church to, to welcome Christ but there's also a call for the congregation as well. For Christ the conqueror sends out His Spirit to dwell in us as His temple. If the young among us are the gates and the ancient doors are the elders, then the call is for us as the, as the true temple of God to, to open to the King of glory to receive Him so that He may dwell among us 
and in us. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Yahweh, the God of battles. We open for Him, and He is with us in our battles as we again seek to do the work of God. He's the Lord of hosts. Again, we're reminded of the opening. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The Lord has filled this world with hosts. If you watch nature videos of all, you can think of the hosts of birds or fish flying through the sky or sea, large herds of bison or antelope roaming through the wilderness. These reflect the hosts of angels that are at the Lord's command. These reflect the hosts of His church as filled with His Spirit We walk in the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. This reality that Christ has ascended, that He has given us His Spirit, this is our comfort as we serve God, as we seek to walk in the way of holiness. He is the Lord of glory, and He is there. He is there. He is with us. He dwells within us in the struggle, in the battle that is the Christian life. He is the one who has created the world, and as the Creator, He works in us a new creation, and so accomplishes the work of salvation in our lives. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.